Curiouser and Curiouser with George Bendo, John Field, Stuart Harper, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison and Christina Smith. The Jobcast, September 2013 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jobcast. I'm Christina and joining me in the studio today are Indy and George. Hi guys. Hello. Hiya. In the show this time, we talk to Professor David Kirkby about measuring the universe with cosmic sound, we find out what's in the night sky this month, and we round up some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Stuart Harper. This month in the news, gamma-ray bursts and flickering stars. In the midst of the Cold War, the Vela satellites were watching for evidence of nations violating the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty by detonating nuclear weapons in the Earth's atmosphere or in outer space. The event they were looking for was the characteristic gamma-ray burst that occurs when a nuclear weapon explodes. However, between 1969 and 1972, they detected 16 gamma-ray bursts that appeared to be originating from a source not of the Earth. These gamma-ray bursts were the first observations of the single most energetic event that could occur in the universe, the origin of which we still do not completely understand today. Gamma rays are a very energetic form of light. For example, we can see with our own eyes optical light from red to blue. Blue being the highest frequency and the most energetic. If you were to increase the frequency of blue light, giving it more and more energy, it would first become ultraviolet, then x-rays, and then finally gamma rays. A gamma ray burst, then, is a short flash of extremely energetic rays of light that may last only a few milliseconds or up to a few tens of seconds. Even so, for the duration of their short lives, gamma-ray bursts are the brightest event in the universe, and the briefer their life, the brighter they are. The shortest gamma-ray bursts being briefly 100,000 times brighter than a supernova. Since the Vela satellite, we have learned a lot more about gamma-ray bursts. For example, we know that after the initial burst, the object from which the burst originated will have an afterglow that for days after will shine with the full spectrum of light from x-rays to radio waves. This has led to modern gamma-ray burst experiments being a mix of different astronomers all working together. We also know that the longer gamma-ray bursts of a few seconds or more originate from the core of an exploding star upon the moment it goes supernova. However, the cause of the shortest gamma-ray bursts are still a mystery. One reason for this is that the shortest gamma-ray bursts are so powerfully energetic that we simply cannot explain how they occur without using extreme astrophysical scenarios, such as the collision of two neutron stars to form a stellar mass black hole. Such events are poorly understood, in part because they are incredibly complicated, but also because they have never been observed. As mentioned earlier, gamma-ray bursts are followed by a long afterglow. The cause of the afterglow is thought to be related to an expanding shell of radioactive material that is blown out from the initial collision of the two neutron stars that caused the burst. As the radioactive material decays, it will give off light from X-rays to radio waves that we detect on Earth. This event is known as a kilonova. A kilonova is also expected to appear in optical and infrared light as a short-lived and much dimmer supernova. Last month, astronomers using numerous different telescopes, including the Swift, Herschel and Hubble telescopes, 
believe they may have found the first detection of a kilonova in both infrared and optical. By quickly reacting to the detection of a gamma-ray burst, they were able to observe the kilonova from its very beginning. Then, by measuring how the brightness of the kilonova changed over many days, have been able to match the observations with predictions. This means that they could have made the first direct observation of two neutron stars colliding, but to be sure, they will need to have more observations of other kilonovas. If they are correct, though, short gamma-ray bursts and their subsequent kilonovas could become the basis of future astronomical experiments, because they could be used to test for the existence of gravitational waves and probe the early universe. Also in the news, when we see stars in the night sky, we can see them twinkling and changing rapidly as the atmosphere jostles around the light as it travels towards our eyes. These changes have nothing to do with the intrinsic nature of the star, and if we were to be viewing the stars from space, we would see them as stable points of light. However, if our eyes were more sensitive, we would see that they were not stable at all, but are constantly undergoing variations in their brightness on all kinds of timescales, be it minutes, hours or days. By observing the changes in the brightness from the surface of a star, it is possible to infer the strength of its gravitational field. This technique is called astroseismology. Traditionally, astronomers will watch for the effects of large-scale changes in brightness that occur over the course of days. These variations in brightness are typically related to the star's magnetic field and manifest as dark blemishes on the surface known as sunspots. However, these sorts of observations are limited to space-based telescopes because, as mentioned at the start, the light is changed too much by traversing through the atmosphere to be able to measure the changes in brightness of a star accurately using ground-based telescopes. Satellites like Kepler then are required by astroseismologists to make their measurements. Unfortunately though, observing time with satellite-based telescopes is very competitive and the long observations required to make accurate measurements of the gravitational field from brightness variations of stars can only be afforded to a few sources. Fortunately, new research by a team of astroseismologists have uncovered a potential new way of measuring a star's gravitational field in a fraction of the time. This is done by measuring the flicker of the star. Very fast variations in the star's brightness caused by convective currents beneath the surface what they did was to reobserve stars whose gravitational field had already been well established using the old technique. Then, they would compare the old result of the gravitational field of the stars with the one they measured from the star's flicker variation. What they found was the new technique agreed very closely with the results of the old technique. With this encouraging result, they now hope that in the future they will be able to measure the flicker variation of many stars of all different kinds, without having to steal the observing time from other astronomers. Thanks for that, Stuart. Next, we have Christina talking to Professor David Kirkby about measuring the universe with cosmic sound. Joining me now is Professor David Kirkby from UC Irvine and CEA Sackley. Hello. Good morning. And um, yesterday you gave a talk on how to measure the universe with cosmic sound. Um, to start with, can you tell me a little bit about what you're actually trying to measure about the universe? So we're really trying to measure how how it's expanded in the past. So we're trying to to track the, the history of the expansion of the universe. And the reason we're interested in that is because it tells us 
um, what the forces were that were shaping that expansion. So in particular, things like dark matter and dark energy. So you're looking like at the expansion from, from very early times, or are you looking at it in, in any specific uh, time period? Um, so with any uh, sample, there's, there's, there's some redshift associated with that sample, and that's going to determine what, how far back in, in time you're looking at the expansion. So by redshift, you mean sort of shifting of light towards the red end of the spectrum? Right, so sh- shifting of the light um, because of the, the expansion of the universe, so like, like a Doppler shift that you would hear with a, with a siren, but, um, but, but this time because of the, the universe actually expanding and stretching out the, the wavelengths of the light. So. Okay, cool. You said you're going to do this through cosmic sound. What exactly is cosmic sound? Well, so it's it's a little complicated. It took me a while to to understand it. Um, but but the, the way I think about it is that right after the Big Bang, there were there were um, some sound waves that were uh, created, and um, but they they only lasted for for a short amount of time. Um, so it's as if the the Big Bang you know had a a noise associated with it. But at some point, the the um, so those sound waves traveled out, and at some point, the sound couldn't travel anymore; it just stopped. And so we, those sound waves got frozen, um, frozen in, and and they basically lasted uh, throughout the rest of the, the expansion of the universe. So it's that it's really those frozen echoes of the of these initial sound waves. They're not really sound waves you can hear. This is more of a a scientist's um, definition of sound as um, as a, a wave of of pressure moving moving through a through a fluid. So. Why did they get frozen? Was there a, a change in in the universe? So yeah, that's a good question. So the um, in in the early universe, there was um, the, the fluid that the or the gas that the, the sound was moving through was um, was a mixture of of light um, and ordinary matter, so matter made of uh, of atoms. So that that's not really a state of uh, of, of matter that we see. Today, because it it only occurs when you have very very high uh, energies, um, because you have a very dense dense material. So it's a bit it's a bit like a plasma that you could create um, in a fluorescent bulb, right? Uh, today, and so the, the universe at that at that time, you, the the light and the the um, you couldn't see through the universe. So I couldn't see you uh, across the room if we were sitting in the the early universe. So light just wouldn't couldn't travel in straight lines. It kept bumping into uh, to matter. Um, and they they were really very tightly tightly coupled together, so it's it's kind of an unusual. Um, it, it's hard to imagine, but that's but it, that 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 allows uh, sound waves to to exist. But as the universe expanded, this um, this fluid basically broke apart, and the and the light a bit started behaving the way we think light is behaving. And all of a sudden, it's as if there were clouds in the early universe, and at some point, those clouds just sort of disappeared, like the mist burning off in the morning. So. <laughs> okay, brilliant. So. How can you actually go about measuring these sound waves? So, if there was, if the universe was had been perfectly smooth, um, and there had just been one little patch, one spot where there was a little extra stuff in the universe, then what we would see in the night sky is we would we would see uh, basically a little. We'd see that patch, um, and there would be a little ring around it, a very faint ring around it, and that that faint ring would be this this sound wave that got frozen in. Um, now we don't, and, and the size of that ring, it would be, it would be about twice the size of the the moon. Okay, so it's, you know, it's, it's something quite big, and you could easily, you could easily see. And we don't see that in the night sky. Um, and and the reason for that is that the universe actually had lots and lots of little um, bumps and valleys in in the early distribution of stuff. 
And so re really what we see looks a lot more jumbled, but it's, it's just because um, I, I like to think of each, each little uh, bump of stuff in the early universe like a raindrop. And then so the night sky we see is it's really like lots of raindrops falling onto a pond. And, and when you have enough raindrops falling on a pond, you can't really see anymore the original, the circles, the circular ripples from individual raindrops. It just looks like a big jumble. And that, that's really um, the, way, the way we see the universe today. So. so it's all kind of, they're all added together, all one on top of the another, all jumbled up. And you right. To, how, how do you actually go about separating those? Can you do them, do you do like models or? Um, so so we, use, uh, we use statistics. And, and what that means is that um, we, we, we try and reconstruct statistically this, um, this raindrop pattern by looking how likely it is to find um, galaxies that are a certain distance apart on, on the sky. Um, so it's something you can't really see by eye. If I showed you a picture which had, which had this raindrop pattern in it or didn't, you would never be able to tell by eye it's there. So you, you really have to just crunch through the math and, and, and uh, look at the statistics. And you'll see that it's just slightly more likely to find galaxies that are, that are a few degrees apart um, than, than, than galaxies that are a little bit further apart or a little bit closer apart. There's sort of a special, a magic separation for galaxies where it's slightly more likely to, to find them. Is it, is it only galaxies that you use to to find these patterns, or do you use other objects as well? So, so galaxies are the, uh, the classic way of, of, of seeing these, uh, these sound waves. What we did is actually a little bit, um, a little bit trickier. So instead, instead of using, using galaxies, we look for this, these, uh, the echoes of these sound waves in the space between the galaxies, which is something you, can't, you ordinarily can't see uh, at all. So it's what, it's what we call the intergalactic medium. And although you can't see it, it actually has most of the atoms in the universe. So you're probably the 90 or 95 percent of the atoms in the universe are in this invisible stuff between between the galaxies. So we have to do some do some tricks in order to be able to to see where where things are in this intergalactic medium. So what we use is we 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 shine a bright light through this intergalactic medium, and that that helps us see the the structure. So we can't actually put bright lights out in the universe, so we have to find things that are already there doing the job for us. And so we use um, objects called quasars, and that's so that they're extremely bright um, objects that you can see from very far away. And then they basically illuminate this intergalactic medium, and we can see from the shadows that it casts where, where the, the stuff is. This, uh, and, and what we're really looking for is just um, hydrogen, so just you know, the simplest atom possible. So as the light comes from this quasar towards us, like hydrogen uh, creates like absorption signatures. Right. So the hydrogen. Right. So as the light comes comes towards us, it will um, it will get uh, absorbed if there's some hydrogen in this. So so it's really like cre creating a shadow because of the absorption. It's like if you put a if you look at a bright light through a through a, a tissue, you, some of the the light will get attenuated. You'll see less light because some of the light got absorbed in the tissue. So we're doing we're doing the same thing. Yeah. It's amazing that you can sort of map, so to speak, um, <laughs> hydrogen through the universe by by looking at light from really, really far away. I just personally think that's really amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, a, a crucial part of that is the fact that we're looking at this this light over very large distances, because the um, otherwise we wouldn't we wouldn't know where the hydrogen was. We would just know there was some hydrogen between us and these these bright lights. But the fact that the um, as the light travels towards us, it's changing its color continuously means that there's, there's only one special color where the light can be absorbed by hydrogen. So we can we can figure out um, from which which color of light is missing from the light that, that reaches us on Earth, where exactly the hydrogen was that absorbed it. So 
That's really cool. That's really cool. What sort of instruments do you use to look at these? Is there a special telescope somewhere that does these observations? Yeah, so, so we use um, a, a telescope that's called the, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. So it's been um, uh, started running in, in, I think, 2000. The overall mission of that, that telescope is to make uh, three-dimensional atlases of, of the, uh, the things outside of our, our galaxy. Um, and um, in order to, to study um, how much uh, of the hydrogen is absorbing light from these distant quasars, you can't take photographs of the, um, the sky because you really, you really need to see um, for each wavelength of light how much, um, how much absorption there's been. So you need to use a, a spectrograph, um, which basically separates the light into its, uh, its constituent wavelengths. But you don't want to take just one spectrograph a night, so um, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey has developed a technique of, of taking a thousand spectra all, all at once. So one, a thousand simultaneously? Yeah, simultaneously, yeah. That's a massive number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that, so that, that's what enables us to actually really do a survey and, and, and measure lots of these things over just a few years. So. How does it do that? How does it collect 1,000 spectra simultaneously? What we do is instead of uh, instead of taking a photograph, we, we have a camera that, that's basically, I mean, just like a normal digital camera. But what we do is we feed into the camera the light from uh, optical fibers, so the same type of fiber they would stick into your knee to do a arthroscopic um, surgery. And but that that what goes into that fiber at, at one end is the light from a, from a galaxy or a quasar. Um, and then at the other end, the light is, is put onto uh, um, something like a prism, although, or, although really a, a diffraction grating, um, that just spreads the light out into its constituent colors. So really it, tur- it turns that spot of light into, uh, into a long streak where you can see the individual colors. And then it's those streaks that go onto our, our camera. So our images actually look quite odd because you just see all these, these streaks of light on them. Um, maybe I mean, one aspect that's interesting for this project is that all the data is public, so... Oh, all the data is entirely public. Yeah. Okay, so people can go and have a look at the data. Yeah. So any we um, every year we release uh, a new chunk of our our data, and we just um, last last July we we did our ninth data release. Um, but all the data is uh, is uh, is freely available. Um, it's, it's actually quite easy to get started just just in your web browser. So if you go to uh, stss.org. Um, you, with a few clicks, you can actually tell it what part of the sky you're interested in. Um, it will it will pull up uh, the the photograph of that part of the sky. So it's as if you have in your in your computer, uh, you know, a high powered telescope that you can point to any part of the sky and pull up an image, even if it's the middle of the day. <laughs> and then, and once you've uh, found an image, you can look for an object you're interested in. And if it has been um, uh, measured spectroscopically, you could then click on that and actually see the this, this spectrum, so the, exactly how much light was absorbed from uh, at each different wavelength. So if you'd like to look for a quasar, you want to look for faint blue smudges in the image. Um, and then uh, if you look at one of those spectra, you could try and figure out how, how we determine the, the redshift of those, uh, those objects. So. That's brilliant that it's just there, freely yeah. available for people to, to look at. And Yeah, I just think, that, I think that's brilliant. <laughs> Um, also, in your talk, you were talking about um, the future plans for future surveys. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those? Right. So, although we're doing these comprehensive surveys, making these 3D atlases, we haven't really reached the limit of what's um, of, of what you can see from Earth. 
And so there's, there's a lot more we could do with, a, with an even bigger and faster survey. So right now we're able to, to measure the, the spectra of, of 1,000 objects at a time. Um, so the next jump is going to require going to about 5,000 spectra at a time. And, that, and, that, that, and that's, that's quite a challenge, because right now um, someone actually comes and by hand plugs in all of the optical fibers into holes drilled into a, a big aluminum plate. And they do that every night? Every well, day. they do that during the day, so, okay. yeah, yeah. And then um, and to, to have them ready for the, uh, for the night. But that, that, that just won't work um, anymore. Uh, the fibers are just too, too small and too closely packed on the, uh, on the, the, the plate. So um, the next generation is going to have to use some sort of robotic uh, positioners. So where there's actually um, you, you can steer each, each, you can position each fiber just uh, electronically to, to to capture the light um, from from some target object. So that's that, that's a big uh, a big challenge, and that's that's a problem that people are working on now, and will be necessary to uh, to go to the next generation. Oh well, it's all really exciting, really amazing stuff, and thank you very much for telling us all about your work. Thank you, it's been fun. Thanks for that, Christina. Now we get to the part of the show where we fit in everything that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, back in 2003, uh, on the 25th of August, at 6.35 UK time, or 5.35 Greenwich Mean Time, uh, I was in Las Vegas, and I had just had a uh, couple of scoops of gelato and a scoop of raspberry sorbet, and I was returning back to my hotel room. And in Florida at 1.35 in the morning, the Spitzer Space Telescope was being launched into space on a Delta II rocket. Last month was the 10-year anniversary of the Spitzer Space Telescope mission, and the mission is still going today. Did it not run out of coolant sometime in 2009? It operated for about five and a half years uh, with coolant, which was actually three and a half years longer than what a lot of people expected originally, uh, which was very in impressive in and of itself. But after the coolant ran out, uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope was still able to uh, operate its two shortest wavelength uh, imagers, so it's actually still able to make images at 3.6 and 4.5 microns. The telescope's done a lot of things in its 10-year uh, lifetime. Some of the highlights which uh, NASA put out in their press release celebrating the 10-year anniversary include observations of the comet Temple 1, the first detection of emission from extrasolar planets, mapping stars buried in dust inside star-forming regions, and observing more distant uh, high-redshift galaxies, including luminous and ultra-luminous infrared galaxies as well. Overall, people have been very impressed with what the uh, telescope's been able to do. This was one of the four great observatories that NASA pushed forward in the uh, 1980s and 1990s. The other three telescopes are the Hubble Space uh, Telescope, which is uh, still going strong, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is uh, still one of the uh, best X-ray telescopes that has been launched into space, and the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, which is the only telescope out of the four uh, which has ceased to operate. So uh, the Gray Observatory's program has done impressive work, and Spitzer Space Telescope has um, 
done impressive work and has exceeded everyone's expectations. Cool. It's good to know that such a such a great instrument is still going after 10 years. It's still doing impressive work in terms of mapping stars and starlight within our own galaxy and mapping starlight from both nearby and more distant galaxies as well. Cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really great to see these, uh, these venerable telescopes that are still up there and still doing good science. Um, although there have been new telescopes since then, and I'm going to talk to you guys about one of those. It's the Kepler Space Telescope, launched in 2009. Unfortunately, it broke. Effectively, one of the uh, so-called reaction wheels that help the telescope point to the right spot has, has gone wrong, and it's, uh, it's the second one to do so. And this means that Kepler can no longer observe, detect traces of exoplanets, which was its primary mission. The way Kepler works is that it points uh, at a star and stays very still, and it looks for tiny dips in the light of the star caused by planets passing in front of it. And so without this reaction wheel, which apparently became stuck a bit like a supermarket trolley wheel, according to the Kepler people, and NASA have been trying to find a workaround for this, but they, ha- they haven't managed to. And so it means that the telescope can't stay still can't be stable enough to, to, to follow the star as precisely as it needs to to pick up these traces of exoplanets. So unfortunately it's gonna it's gonna stop working. It's not gonna be able to to, to look for any new exoplanets. However, uh it has already confirmed hundred and thirty five of these uh of these exoplanets and there is it still has um a database which has about more than thir- three thousand five hundred candidates, potential exoplanets that, that haven't been fully analyzed, fully investigated. And the mission scientists expect a lot of these to actually be confirmed as planets, so there's still a lot of stuff to analyze there. Kepler was launched to try and find Earth-sized worlds, which orbit their stars in, in what's known as the habitable zone, or it's also been called Goldilocks zone, uh, where the conditions are just right for, for some form of life, at least as we think we know it, to develop. So it's looking for Earth-type planets with rocky surfaces, um, and it's, it has identified a number of so-called super-Earths, which are slightly bigger than the Earth, in habitable zones. And within that database, the 3,500 that still need to be analysed, hopefully there will be more super-Earths than even planets that could possibly be comparable to, to our own planet. It's brilliant that there's all this data still to be examined, and just in general, how much it's managed to do over its lifetime. It's, it's an awesome instrument. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it was launched in, uh, like four years ago. In fact, in November, it reached sort of the end of its mission profile, so... Since November, all it's been doing is, is almost a bonus uh, um, for the scientists. And, yeah, the great thing about, about telescopes nowadays is that they just take so much data. And, and so even when it, when it stops doing the actual observing, there's still plenty of work for, for scientists uh, uh, down the line. Well, aside from that, it's uh, not only that the telescopes take a lot of data, but uh, also that uh, telescopes these days also put their data online. So not only do people associated with Kepler get to see the Kepler data, but everybody in the astronomical community will be able to look at those data for their own scientific purposes as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's the great sort of collaborative nature of science. Now, a little bit closer to home, uh, NASA's Curiosity rover, which is the, the newest rover on Mars, um, has driven itself for the first time. So usually what happens with Curiosity is... The people on Earth who are controlling it, they send up instructions, very, very detailed instructions as to exactly how the rover is going to move, where it's going to go, what it's going to look at. And for the first time, it reached a dip. So the the rover maps out its area using using a set of stereo cameras, so kind of like our eyes, it 
takes two pictures with two different cameras and gets depth perception. And from that, the controllers can actually figure out a, a path that is completely safe. But in this case, they could only see ground up to the point where the dip began and then a ground on the other side. And they sort of mapped all the way to the point where they could no longer see. And then they gave it an end point and let the rover drive itself between that. Uh, the total distance that it could, they couldn't see was 33 feet. And just to put it in perspective, the total amount that it drove that day is 141 feet or 43 meters. So, I mean, hasn't gone that far in a single day, but it is also on Mars being remote controlled. So it's going, it's going pretty far. It's on its long drive. Uh, towards the three mile high mountain in the middle of Gale Crater, which is called Mount Sharp. And they've got a few different waypoints along the way as to science that they're going to do along the way. It's got a lot of fail safes to make sure it doesn't go off into any sort of drive into rocks or turn itself upside down or anything like that. Um, so yeah. And in fact, um, we've spoken to one of the people involved with the project in, at NAM. And if you want to listen to that interview, it's Professor Sanjeev Gupta from in the NAM 2013 episode. Um, so it's just, it's really cool. Now for someone who can satisfy our curiosity about the night sky, here's Ian Morrison. Well, the night sky, September 2013. Of course, the nice thing is for astronomers that we have more hours of darkness, which can't be bad. We have a lovely sky in the south and towards the southwest after dark. Fairly high up, we have the star Deneb in Cygnus the Swan. Down to its lower right is Vega in Lyra and below them Altair in Aquila the Eagle. Those three stars make up what is called a Summer Triangle. If you scan binoculars from Altair about a third of the way up towards Vega, you should pick up a rather lovely asterism. It's called Brocky's Cluster, but more normally the Cotanger, because it's just like a little Cotanger upside down. And it lies in front of a rather dark part of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift, so it's actually fairly prominent. Down to the lower left of the Summer Triangle is a sweet little constellation, Delphinus the Dolphin, with the four stars making up the body and a little bit of a tail down to the bright star. Over to the left, we have Pegasus rising. And of course, to the left of Pegasus, we have Andromeda. And in Andromeda, we have M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. There's a nice way to find Andromeda. You start at Alpha Rats, that's Alpha Andromedae, which is the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus. You go one star to the left, curve to the right a bit to the second bright star, then go through a right angle to the right, past one fairly bright star, and the same distance again, you should see a milky glow. Now, above Andromeda lies the constellation of Cassiopeia, and the lower right V of the W, that's the three stars at the lower right, they actually form an arrow that also points to Andromeda. It's another way to find it. Further over, coming down from Cassiopeia towards the east, where we have the constellation Perseus, we're still running along the Milky Way, very rich part of the heavens. And between the two is a beautiful little spot made up of two clusters. It's called the Perseus Double Cluster. And they show as a little milky blob, I suppose, with binoculars, but look very lovely in a telescope. So it's a nice part of the sky to observe in these early autumn evenings. What about the planets? 
Well, Jupiter is now beginning what's going to be a, a superb apparition. And I say that because it's lying in Gemini, and that's one of the highest parts of the ecliptic. So when it gets to opposition, that's when it's due south around midnight, it'll be really high in the sky, over 60 degrees elevation. Even now, it's rising at about 1 o'clock BST at the beginning of September, and at the start of astronomical twilight, as it's called, will be 25 degrees above the horizon in the southeast, shining at magnitude minus 2 with a disk about 35 arc seconds across. So well worth getting up a bit early to look for. Of course, by the end of the month, it rises at 11.30 BST and will be at an elevation of 50 degrees before dawn breaks. Its magnitude will have brightened a bit to minus 2.2 and the diameter up to 37.5 arc seconds. Of course, with a small telescope, you'll easily see up to the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it, and at times, of course, the great red spot visible on the surface. Nicely, both equatorial bands are showing well at the present time. Well, what about Saturn? Well, it's lying in Libra, it's now well, well past opposition, and will be seen low in the southwest after sunset. Its magnitude remains at plus 0.7 during the month, and the angular size just drops a bit from 16.1 to 15.6 arc seconds. Nicely, the rings have opened out to about 17 degrees or so from the line of sight, and we are now observing part of the planet's southern hemisphere, with quite a bit of the northern hemisphere hidden by the rings. As it's at pretty low elevation, sadly, telescope views will not be good but you may still be able to spot Saturn's largest moon, Titan. It's lying now in the more southerly part of the ecliptic, so even at opposition will not get that high in the sky. And sadly, that's going to get worse for quite a number of years to come. Mars. Well, I suppose we could say that Mars is beginning its apparition as well. It starts September in Cancer, but, moving quickly across the sky, moves into Leo on the 25th. It shines at magnitude plus 1.6 and rises about 3 o'clock in the morning and will lie about 12 degrees above the northeastern horizon by 4.30 a.m. as darkness begins to end. It should be easily visible in monoculars in the pre-dawn sky, but of course cease using them at sunrise. Its magnitude at plus 1.6, remains constant during the month, with the angular size increasing a touch from 4.1 to 4.4 arc seconds. Below about 5 arc seconds angular diameter, it's unlikely you'll see any markings on its salmon pink surface. We'll need to wait a month or so for surface features like the sinus iridium and the polar caps to become visible. And lastly, Mercury. Well, Towards the end of September, it might be seen just above the horizon about half an hour after sunset, down to the lower right of Venus and Saturn. It'll be hard to see, even when using binoculars or a telescope, given its magnitude of about minus 0.1. That's not that faint, but of course it's seen against the glare of the sun. So finally, what about the highlights of the month? Well... On September the 8th and 9th, after sunset, we can see Saturn and Venus along with a thin crescent moon. About 45 minutes after sunset on the 8th, and given a low horizon, 
in the west-southwest, it should be possible to observe Venus just over two degrees to the upper left of a thin crescent moon. Saturn lies just over 11 degrees away, slightly up and to the left. On the following night, the waxing crescent moon will lie just over 3 degrees to the lower left of Saturn. So that's two evenings, which should be nice to view if it's clear. In the night sky page that I produce on the Jodrellbank website, I've actually included two highlights, which are trying to show you some four of the nice features visible with a telescope in this part of the sky. The globular cluster in Hercules, seen in the west after sunset, and the double-double star in Lyra. And then we have two rather nice planetary nebula, the Ring and Dumbbell Nebulae in Lyra and Volpecula, respectively. So have a look at the night sky page, and there are charts to show you how to find them. On September the 17th, one hour after sunset, Saturn lies almost directly above Venus in the darkening sky. So again, you need a low horizon in the west-southwest, and you'll see Saturn at plus 0.7 magnitudes, just 3.5 degrees above Venus, which is much brighter at magnitude minus 4.1. Around the end of September, the 24th in particular, 30 minutes after sunset, Mercury joins Saturn and Venus in the twilight sky. Mercury then will be just three quarters of a degree above and to the right of the star Spica in Virgo. Saturn lies just over 15 degrees away, slightly up to the left of Mercury, and then Venus is seven degrees to Saturn's lower left. If clear, a nice little grouping of planets. And finally, perhaps what could be the highlight of the month, and particularly around the 27th, Comet Ison is now appearing in the morning sky. And so before dawn, particularly towards the end of the month, and given a six-inch or greater telescope, it may be possible to spot Comet Ison, which should have had a predicted magnitude of plus 10. However, recently, it has not been brightening as much as predicted. And when observed on August the 12th, had a magnitude of 14.3, rather than its predicted magnitude of between 12.3 and 13.5, so not as bright as expected. Sadly, this might mean that Ison will not be the spectacular comet that many had hoped for. Anyway, we shall find out, and I'll try and keep you updated on the night sky page. On the 27th, it will lie just two degrees above the planet Mars, which had just crossed into Leo from Cancer. There's a very nice app for Android and iPads. Um, it's called Sky Safari Plus. It costs about £9, £10. And a nice thing it will do is to download Comet's orbital elements and then show them in the sky. So that's a very, very nice app to have, and you can get it for your iPhone or Android phone as well. And I've got them for, for both of mine. So quite a bit to see this month. We have more time to do it, and I'm certainly looking forward to trying to get a first glimpse of Comet Ison. Good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. Now John Field tells us what you can see in the southern night sky. Kia ora, and welcome to the September Jodcast from Carter Observatory. September marks a rapid change in the daylight hours as we race towards the spring equinox on the 22nd. We also see a marked change in our evening stars as our winter stars set earlier in the evening in the west 
and our summer stars begin to rise earlier in the east. After sunset, the scorpion reigns supreme high overhead with its tail curled tightly around the zenith. To Māori, it is a fishhook. To Chinese, it is seen as the azure dragon, with the smoke of the dragon's breath forming the Milky Way. This distinct shape of bright stars is host to a number of bright stars, double stars and star clusters. A pair of binoculars will only add to the number of sights you can see. The Milky Way is running north to south and provide a wealth of targets. And the northern sky was next stretched along the Milky Way towards Scorpius is Cygnus the Swan, also known as the Northern Cross. Its brightest star, Dennett, can be seen low on our northern horizon. It marks the tail of the swan. Dennett is the 19th brightest star in our night sky. It is a blue-white giant. Its distance is not accurately known and is estimated to be about 2,600 light-years away. Dennett has stopped fusing hydrogen at its core and is therefore moving away from the main sequence of hydrogen-fusing stars and is becoming a red giant. With an estimated mass of 20 times that of our Sun, this star may eventually explode as a supernova. Deneb, along with the nearby bright stars, Vega and Altair, form the Winter Triangle. Higher up in the Milky Way is Beta Cygnus. This star marks the head of the Swan. It is called Alberio, which name means the Beak Star. Although catalogued as the second brightest star in the Swan, it is in fact the fifth brightest. This star is revealed as a lovely double with gold and blue components that can be easily separated in small telescopes. At 380 light years away, these two stars shine with a combined magnitude of 3. Gamma Cygnus is the second brightest star in Cygnus and it marks the chest of the swan and the centre of the cross. It is another supergiant star with an estimated mass of 12 times that of the sun. From a dark location, a dark band can be seen in the Milky Way running up Cygnus. Called the Cygnus Rift, or the Northern Coal Sack, it is a large cloud of interstellar dust about 300 light years away and contains about 1 million solar masses of material. East and northward of Deneb is the open cluster M39, covering a region of sky larger than the full moon. Visible to the unaided eye in a clear dark sky, it is best viewed through binoculars or a wide-field telescope. It is revealed as a loose cluster of over 30 stars of a triangular shape. This cluster will be a challenge to view from New Zealand, but for observers further north, it will be easier to spot. As we saw before, Altair marks the top of the Winter Triangle looking to the eastern horizon. We see a solitary bright star, Fomalhau. The 18th brightest star in the night sky, Fomalhau marks the mouth of the faint constellation of Pisces Australis, the southern fish. Between Fomalhau and Altair is a long line of stars that forms the zodiac constellation of Aquarius, the water carrier. Alpha Aquarii at magnitude 2.96 is actually the second brightest star in the constellation. It is about 520 light years away and estimated in range of brightness from 3000 to 5000 times that of the Sun. Slightly brighter at magnitude 2.87 is Beta Aquarii which is 540 light years away and is about 3000 times brighter than the Sun. Zeta Aquarii is a magnitude 3.6 double star 92 light years away. Prior to 2004, it was located in the southern celestial sphere. After 2004, it crossed the celestial sphere and is now in the northern celestial sphere. Also in Aquarius is M2, a globular cluster visible in binoculars as a hazy star. With a 20 centimetre telescope, this cluster can be partially resolved. NGC 7293, commonly called the Helix Nebula, 
is a nearby planetary nebula that covers an area of the sky about half the size of the full moon. Despite its large size, it has a low surface brightness. It can be seen in binoculars as a hazy circular spot. Small telescopes with a low power eyepiece should reveal the nebula with little difficulty. Crux, the Southern Cross, can be found nestled in the Milky Way and is midway down the southwestern horizon, with the two pointer stars following behind. Sitting beside the second brightest star in Crux is a fuzzy fourth magnitude star that, when viewed through binoculars, reveals itself as a lovely cluster called the Jewel Box. The Jewel Box is one of the youngest known open clusters with an age of about 14 million years. The brightest stars in the Jewel Box cluster are supergiants and include some of the brightest stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Calculating its distance is difficult as the Colstick Nebula skews some of its light current estimates put it at 6,500 light years away. The Colstick is a large cloud of interstellar dust and gas about 600 light years away. Sitting along the southern horizon is Canopus, the second brightest star in our night sky. It is low and will move along the southern horizon during the evening. In our evening sky, the planets Venus and Saturn can be seen in the west after sunset, and during early September they will be joined by the planet Mercury. On the 9th, the moon will sit between Venus and Saturn, making a pretty grouping. On the 25th, Mercury will be nearby to the star Spica, and also will make a nice pairing. Over the month, Venus will move past Saturn, and by month's end, it will set around 11.30pm. Saturn will move closer to the sun, and will get set progressively earlier, and will also get fainter. The morning sky sees Jupiter climbing higher, with Mars hiding in the twilight sky. Above Jupiter are the bright stars the constellation Taurus, Orion, Canis Major and Canis Minor. From the team here at Carter Observatory, we wish you clear skies. Thanks for that, John. Now, onto the feedback. We have post. So we've got a lovely postcard from Julian Andrews, which has a, a view of the Bay of Javier uh, in Spain, uh, what looks like sunset um, looks like a very little pretty coastal town and he says um, hola to all of the Jodcast from Javea where it is 26 degrees Celsius at 1.30 in the morning perfect weather for observing this year's Perseid meteor shower lots of really bright ones in a crystal clear dark sky love the Jodcast Julian Andrews so thanks a lot Julian for all the love but we're incredibly jealous of you right yep, now we are <laughs> because well, Manchester wasn't the best place to look, look at the Perseids this year, and I can think of few better things than to check them out at half one in the morning in Spain with possibly a glass of sangria and some paella. <laughs> but um, that's just me rambling now. And on Facebook, Andrew Horner's got in contact and said that he enjoyed the NAM special, particularly the piece on Curiosity. So thank you very much for letting us know, Andrew. We got two tweets uh, this month. Uh, first, Le Moussier says, uh, thanks for keeping me going with the fabulous podcast while I'm fieldwork in France. And some YYCGuy51 says, glad you like the T-Rex postcards. Uh, thanks for the retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. The forum at forum.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post and the address is on the website. So all that's left to say is thanks to Professor David Kirkby for the interview. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The producer was Christina Smith. Until next time... (laughs) 
جان